This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. Today, we are joined for a very rare interview with one of the legends of D.C. news and politics, Ann Edwards. She was a special assistant to the president in the Clinton administration in charge of press advance. She played a similar role in the Jimmy Carter administration and holds the distinction of being the very first woman ever hired as a desk assistant at a major news network. Together, we look at the Obama White House and its up-tempo schedule of events and what mistakes they've made of late, plus the inside scoop on what's not working so well for Republicans in the early stage of the 2012 campaign. I am joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, as I was production chief in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it's great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. We're going to have a great show today talking with my old friend Ann Edwards. But this is one of those weeks when even the things that you think get no coverage anymore get to the top of the news. And I'm talking about this cultural event, the White House uh, staged in the East Room. This just blows me away. Yeah, I mean, this was a small really uncovered event in the East Room, and then you get this. That's right. The poet Common, among many other poets, gets up and, and does his poetry, and and immediately the right springs into action, Karl Rove and others calling calling the poet named Common a thug, looking back to uh, old times in which he may have called for violence against the president. What's interesting about it is just how cultural events happen in the East Room at the White House so often, and they just haven't been covered at all since Kennedy's administration when Pablo Casal came to play at the White House for Jack and Jackie, and suddenly cultural events can make news if, if there's controversy. Well, we've talked about it before on Polyoptics with uh, former Deputy Social Secretary Dory Thornton, and these issues will not escape us in the future. But we do have a really terrific show today, Josh, and I'm very excited to introduce people to a longtime old friend of yours. We are joined now by a fantastic woman with great credentials. Ann Edwards served most recently in the Clinton White House, where, Josh, you also served. Ann was uh, special assistant to the president and director of Press Advance, an incredibly important position. Not the only time she served in the White House, however. Uh, She was uh, also in charge of similar matters in the Carter White House. And welcome to Polyoptics. Thank you very much, Adam. Nice to be here. Josh and you were buddies in the Clinton administration and, and worked uh, so closely together. Josh, it must be nice to, to have Ann back here with you now. Oh, it sure is. You know, Adam, when uh, in, in all those great uh, movies of airline disasters, uh, the disaster is always averted by the calm air traffic control person at the microphone talking the unex- inexperienced pilot down putting down the landing gear and bringing the bringing the plane safely home and when i started with the uh, governor clinton's campaign in early 1992 and was always that air traffic controller back in Little Rock, uh, helping all of us, hundreds of people on the road, figure out how to present Governor Clinton just so. And as you mentioned, it, it, it was born from an enormous amount of experience, begun in journalism, uh, continued in the Carter White House. 
And as I think of myself now as a dinosaur of the Clinton era, we, we, all, we all looked at people who had practical, real White House experience uh, from the Carter era to help us figure out, you know, how to bring a president to foreign soil and overseas. And none of us had a clue of how to do that. Well, we're really going to we're gonna <laughs> dig into that today because it is an incredibly difficult proposition. And, you know, at the time that I spent uh, in the Bush White House doing the same thing, I benefited from uh, a, a number of wise hands that, that Anne also knows. Um, and she and I share an experience at ABC News in Washington where she was uh, one of the, the very first women uh, to join uh, an editorial team uh, at a network. They and had to she, add the lowest rung on the ladder, man. But that they was had the, to add that. And yeah, what, that was what my did your wrong, first baby. paycheck say, Ann? It said copy boy. <laughs> copy boy. Yep. She was no copy boy, but that's, how they, that's what they called that's her. That's all they had. Um, this has been a phenomenally uh, up-tempo week for the for the Obama administration. Uh, the president clearly coming off of a great deal of high energy, uh, born of the Osama bin Laden raid in Abbottabad, Pakistan, and we've talked about this. But the things that we're seeing now include a transition both in a, in a political sense towards the 2012 campaign with the rhetoric and the style of speeches the president is giving, but we're seeing a speech in El Paso, Texas this week on the border where the president is uh, talking directly to uh, Mexican-Americans about what had been a priority but didn't get really much attention in, in, in the first term, uh, going to be a big issue in the reelect. And Josh, we also saw the president at the Hispanic prayer breakfast. He was down in North Carolina with the uh, 101st Airborne talking to SEAL Team 6 last week. He's really got a lot going on, and he seems very vibrant and very engaged these days. He's burning up a lot of jet fuel on Air Force One, isn't he, Ann? I mean, it, it reminds me of January 95 and January 98 coming off of periods uh, that President Clinton would have liked to uh, have put behind him. And maybe all this focus on, on uh, national security does really remind President Obama and his team that it's time to divert attention back to domestic issues, huh? I'd come at it a little differently if I could do a couple of things. One is thank you guys for the very kind things you're saying. Part of me would like to leave now just because it uh, seems to have peaked. But the other is that we were never doing anything like uh, as you were too, Adam. No White House treats sort of the press in isolation. It's all part of the big matrix at the table of the schedule and the policy and what's going on in the world and where's the right place to do this thing? Well, what's this thing? What do we want to have out of it at the end of the day? And what happened in when you're talking about the events of 95 and 98, Josh, for President Clinton, a lot of those events were happening that nothing to do with our hands. It's not like they lay on a foreign policy agenda uh, because of they'd rather not do a domestic agenda. There's no way. I mean, we all, everybody in the world knows this. There's no way they timed this week what happened in Pakistan. And when you do look at the president's schedule, what I notice is they've done a very steady, uh, very steady chipping away. Most White Houses do of a domestic agenda. Yeah, there is interrupted by well-timed, or you hope they're well-timed, international trips. And then it's punctuated by things that happen overseas that you have to deal with whether you choose or not. 
same in this country. That is a really good point. Um, and if you're listening to us here on Sirius XM 124 uh, on polyoptics, one thing you should know about White House scheduling is that these schedules happen months in advance. There's usually a, a 90-day block calendar. And, and then you get within a two-week window where you get a timeline from sunrise to sunset of all of the events. Now, it's all fungible, which means it can be moved around. But as you get closer, people like Ann Edwards, who helped to manage the press and in an advanced role, really guide what the networks and the print press ability to cover things will be. The White House press secretary will put out um, backgrounders as, as the schedule becomes public. But there's a lot to do with the scheduling of where things will be and what do you want to get out of it. And a good case in point, Josh, I think is in El Paso earlier this week when the president gave this major address on immigration reform, this was held at a uh, memorial park. It was a a museum of sorts outside that uh, commemorated a peaceful uh, resolution to a territorial dispute between the United States and Mexico. But this was an event that was outside. It was hot as all get out. And people were queued up for hours waiting for the president. And that, you know, as is always the case, somebody passes out because they're not hydrated properly. And here you have the president against what I thought was a little nondescript, although it was a very pleasant looking stone wall background. But he's got those those uh, two uh, teleprompter plates in front of him and he's squinting into the sun. And so if you didn't know the message and you weren't quite sure where he was, what a lot of people I heard took away from it was, well, why is the president squinting? I can't even see or see his eyes. Um, But I listened to the speech and I know it was a very important one. And he definitely uh, had a lot of, uh, of language in there that resonated with the crowd. But these things do all play into one whole packaged uh, bit of political persuasion in. Yeah, if, if I may, um, I did not see, I heard the El Paso, and uh, so much goes into, and actually one thing when you were talking about the the way these decisions can be made, Josh and I would actually be involved in the way every White House is structured differently. That's absolutely every White House's option, but we would be involved six to nine months out, right at inception, and uh, then, yeah, to take, you know, it's like it's like recruiting the team and then getting the ball over the goal line at the end. But um, you do try to think about it that far out. We know we have this coming down the pike. Let's look here. You know, we've got, as you say here, like 500-something days to the election. How are we going to use every one of them? Um, the um, But in El Paso, uh, there's a big decision to go into that to which the president has to say yes. He doesn't just get up and say, okay, hand me my boarding pass. You know, it's... Um, the president has to say yes, that it's worth six hours of his time sitting in an aircraft going into a state where there are also going to be political considerations. Uh, to say I was on the border and looking at it right, I was there. I touched it. I was there. And a lot goes into making him say that. Well, and, go ahead. And, go ahead. And I was just going to add, you know, one thing that Ann Edwards taught us all the time was while the schedule may begin to form months out, the advance team goes in five to seven days out. And then from uh, from that point forward, <clears throat> Anne and her colleagues at the White House are constantly on the phone with the teams deployed on the ground, in this case in El Paso. And one of the first questions that Anne asks is, exactly at, at exactly the time that the president is going to appear, can you tell me where the sun is going to be in the sky? <laughs> 
Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, these are the things that television producers think about. consider. You don't and... want them to be a distraction. It's not about faking anything. You don't. When you've got something as important to say as an immigration policy, good lord, you don't want people walking away saying, uh, "I was distracted by his squinting." Now, I don't want to take anything away from this president or this White House. I think they do a really good job. But that kind of thing happens sometimes, and you really don't want that to be a distracting factor. It's not like you think, I'm going to sell this policy by making this the most fabulous television picture there ever was. You're trying to support the policy. You're just trying to support it. That's right. The message in the image needs to support the policy. Right. The tail can't wag the dog or shouldn't. Uh, but but I think that, uh, that you know, Josh brings up a, a wonderful point about what is this going to look like and your kind of experience about you know needing to think about these elements that 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 other people mostly because it's not their experience and not their job need to consider and sometimes and weather it and becomes other habit. once you once bet. they learn they got it i mean these are usually the people who do this kind of work party really doesn't matter they're incredibly motivated how they're motivated and why is really important to know but you don't know right away you might, you they know, might be motivated by love of particular policy. Uh-oh, they might not even know it, but they're carrying a, a a torch for something. They might be motivated out of ambition. They might just think it's fun. They might be motivated by adrenaline. Or they might be total idealists and total purists. Who knows? Patriots who want to serve the uh, executive office Absolutely. of the president. Absolutely. But the, believe me, these are the people who are going to go two years without sleeping. They aren't going to care about physical abuse to them. I mean it. They're, they're going to sleep on airplanes. They're going to get up at three in the morning. They're going to drag cables through muds. They're highly motivated. And when you tell them... Uh, like some of the things and all I know and I'm I'm not being silly here I everybody I got all this big experience man I am the sum total of my mistakes everything I know is because it didn't happen correctly at some point in my life and if I can spare that to other people happy to but you get these incredibly smart because you don't last in this game if you don't have some street smarts and you don't have some goodness you don't um you get these these wonderful, especially young people on the phone, and you start telling them these, look for this, they get it, they get it, they get it. They start stitching it together themselves. It's and, and, terrific. And oh, oh, by the way, uh, when you live in a little apartment in DuPont Circle and you're told by the White House to go out to the airport, fly to a place you've never been before, like El Paso, Texas, check into a Holiday Inn or a Marriott, and understand the issues that are on the border understand what it makes what it means to live uh, on on the border in Texas you get an incredible education that nothing else like this can provide and and know it's interesting too because I think most people don't know this that there's such a connection between that group on the ground and the White House when it's working properly sometimes um, people see and a lot of these teams at uh, the, the teams who come in at the end can be a little bit younger um, and so there's a little bit of deflation. Then they begin to realize, oh, my, these people actually are talking to the White House. There are people in the White House then who have a vision of this policy or, God help us. I, I love the policy kids when they start being producers. God help us. But you know, there, there was this uh, episode in 1996, I think. And Anne will correct me if I'm wrong. But there was, a spate, there was a spate of church burnings in South Carolina. And I was in Los Angeles, California, finishing up a trip. And I think uh, we, we realized that this had gone from isolated incidents to a rash. And President Clinton decided, I'm going to go down to this rural town in South Carolina. I'm going to bring my entire cabinet with me. And we're going to 
draw the line there and we're going to say that this won't stand. And, you know, I, I immediately threw up my hand to go because this was exactly the kind of issue and circumstance that I knew nothing about and wanted to understand in a personal and visceral sense. So I got immediately on a plane and Anne was, had already been doing the legwork for a while, but just to be, just to stand next to a burned out church in a cornfield and allowing the president to come and deliver this strong message was one of the most powerful things I'd ever been able to do. It's also a powerful thing for a president to do. I mean, the presidents, all presidents understand the importance of this, but when they I hope people, I know they get tired of it, seeing the president at the flood or a president at the this. I'm telling you, and, and nobody who's ever been around an event that powerful that hurts people does not come out of it transformed in some way, reconfigured in some way. And that is part of the importance of getting these uh, good folks to that place. We are talking to Ann Edwards, uh, former head of press advance in the Clinton White House uh, here on Polyoptics on POTUS, Politics of the United States, here at Sirius XM 124. Some news this week, uh, something that uh, Josh and I have talked about uh, offline, not on the radio, but I want to broach it now because I think it's very important for people to understand how this happens and why it's happened and why it would appear that the practice has been discontinued. And what I'm talking about is when the President of the United States addresses the nation, um, either from the Oval Office or as we saw from the East Room when the president addressed the nation after uh, the operation to take out Osama bin Laden. This is one of those kind of events, people, where the president is talking directly to a camera in a room that is largely bereft of people. There's certainly not an audience there. And so what happens is the still cameras, the press that bring these images to the papers are completely isolated. There are just a few television cameras there, a primary camera, a backup, and maybe an off-angle uh, off independent pool camera. But when it's done, you would be very surprised to know that some of the most ethical and pious journalists will engage in a reenactment that happens almost all the time. And, and usually what happens is the president will come back and sit in front of the cameras or he will, in this case, reenact the walk up through the cross hallway to the podium. And then the still cameras will, 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 will uh, you know, take all the pictures and the president will speak for a moment so they can get the still pictures that they want. But it's not the actual speech. And this has been a practice for generations at the White House. I have been a part of it. I have I facilitated have it. And has too. Well, let's talk well, about this, sure. guys, because th you know now now that the red flag has been thrown, well, wait, the wait. age of the internet has come, and people are savvy to it. And the White House just just yesterday, Josh Ernest said, "Okay, you know what? This is bad business. We're not going to do this anymore." If it's being if it's a reenactment, it's bad business. If it's a reenactment that's being portrayed as an actual, that's bad business, and everybody's credibility is shot. Okay, what my uh, experience with this has been, which is pretty deep. And this one, I will say it is, is that you can't have the, the photographers. They're fabulous. I mean, they're amazingly gifted people. We love them all. We do. But they make a lot of noise. And I don't care if their new little fancy pants digital cameras are silent. They don't click. There's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of commotion. There's even the best and gentlest and least intrusive of them. It's still a distraction at a moment when something way more important is going on. Yeah, And as the television producer in the room, let me just say... 
anything like that that's that diverts the president's eyes from the camera for, for just a, a second, second makes him feel distracted, right. no longer connected to his audience. Right. So when the, the photographers say, we still need our picture, okay, kids, wait till it's over so you don't blow anything up. Come in, take your picture, and go away. And that's what's happened. And most times, the organizations I know portray it as moments after the speech or in the Oval Office to deliver a speech for and don't uh, mislabel it. If anybody's been mislabeling it, then they have a reason to stop. That's that's right. You know, uh, Doug Mills, a guy that uh, both of you and I know, uh, one of the best photo- one of the best photographers in the business Agreed. and the lead lead photographer of the New York Times, what has been widely quoted in a AP article out today by Dave Botter. And Doug basically lays it on the line, and he understands where where a president would come from to say what that what is essentially a television production, whether from the Oval Office or the East Room. It only takes uh, one dropped lens to have a president suddenly look aside and have this entire, basically, global TV broadcast shot. And so what I would say, both to the White House, which has said they're going to stop the practice, and to the photographers' associations, which has raised up their arms, that, that I think people ought to get over this, because this re- this is about the president communicating the way he chooses to communicate, and photographers are a noisy lot. And to be able to create at least a, 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 a crisp, clean front page image, uh, either you're going to have to say, as Ann notes clearly in the caption that this is uh, speaks to photographers after the event, or uh, accept the fact that this happens to, to show time and place. Well, let me weigh in on it because, you know, the whiny group that they are, and, and I love oh, them too, no, okay, no. but they're a whiny group. I love them. Don't go calling them. <clears> and right. they kind of screwed themselves uh, here, and so they're they're going to be shut out, and now... The, but, the, but, but they're also, Adam, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. They're also at the point that they need to revisit the whole thing. Yeah. They're, they're talking about a practice that began, I believe, when God threw Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. They brought the pool in later, okay? And equipment has changed, and these guys all need to go back. There are ways to do these things You're absolutely now right. That just, you know, okay, just stop. Just, just, just new canvas, start from scratch. We need a photograph taken through editorial eyes, not just by the White House official photographer, but uh, oh, you through bet. independent editorial eyes of the president at an incredibly important moment. So just start again. How do we do it? Okay. Well, listen, there are two things I want to say, and I wasn't even going to go here, but now I got Ann, and she's fired up, and I want to go, <laughs> and I want to talk a little bit, even go a step further here. Um, yeah, the, it's the end of that soft voice thing, man. The uh, the, the technology has changed, Josh. Uh, we have high-definition cameras, and it used to be you'd take a screen grab if you wanted an alternative, and it would be a soft, out-of-focus image. Right. You can get a really crisp screen grab from one of these HD cameras, uh, that can give you the kind of thing that you need, and that is an editorial lens. Yep. Um, but then again, it's kind of not. So That's let's right. be honest here for a second. I was a network producer with ABC News right up until the time that I jumped the fence and went to work at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and my job was to deal with the press and take care of any time the president was going to be uh, dealt with through a video camera. The press shop was still dealing with the uh, the still cameras, but 
I want to take you in even a little bit further. This recreation practice that is now going to be discontinued, born of the right ideas and the right way to accommodate the American people truly. There's going to still be, they'll be taking some picture. They're, they will. But we had this issue with, uh, with the video cameras because right. when the President of the United States is sitting in front of a video camera there, and, and he's going to address the world or the American people, the question then becomes, how do you release that feed in a way that is appropriate to both the president and respect the privacy of the Oval Office up until it's time to give the address and the the networks? And I'll tell you, there had been a practice, which we fought about a lot and they continue to struggle with, whereby the White House, in working with the networks, would hold the image right there, that there would be a switcher. Oh, I and never did that. Yeah, never, and, and, and we would put it. up a slate <coughs> that showed everyone that they had the right picture, but then we would release it some 10 seconds beforehand. And what happens if you don't do that? Well, then you get Fox News or someone else sitting on the president, just sitting there looking into the camera like a deer in the headlights, waiting for someone to tell him it's time to go. And you can make the president look like a complete idiot, like right. he's just sitting there and you're you like, know, well, and talk to me, man. You know, somebody ruins it for everybody else. And there are presidents who can handle that moment or there are presidents lost in their own thoughts, you know, that um, I complete, I agree. I was never comfortable with the White House holding on that switch. Do I understand reasons for it? Yeah. I haven't figured out completely what ought to happen there because there are people who take advantage, who, who abuse that moment. There are, but the networks don't have as much money as they used to. They don't work together the way that they used to, Josh. Yeah. And quite frankly, uh, you know, and George Bush is a good example of this. If you just set George W. Bush in front of a camera and told him to hang on for 30 seconds... He's going to make a funny face. He's not that kind of guy. He's not the kind of guy who can do that. I don't think I've ever worked around a president who can do that. I and haven't I've, either. Uh, who just any president of the United States, there's just too much going on in their heads. There I, is. They just sit there, you know? When it comes to video, I, t I respect the White House's ability to keep the slate black until the president is ready to talk. It's It's his show. Uh, the the White House uh, the White House Communications Agency and the Signal Corps is perfectly able to create its own high definition camera and a feed out to the press lobby. And I may sound a little doctrinaire in this way, but if the you president is, if the president's going to talk, I think he has the ability to uh, uh, in in that kind of setting to provide a feed and let whoever wants to take it take it. I, I, as, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, John. And, I just, and as it relates to news photographers, who I love, I would say that this recreation, uh, snaf this recreation scandal is about them and their jobs. And I, I think that the front pages of the world's newspapers would, perfectly, would be perfectly adequate to have as artwork a high-def screen grab of the event if it's a purely televised speech. Um, I don't want to, uh, if, if there's a dead horse on this table, I don't want to take another No, kick. but yeah, I think let we me, have to. Me, yeah, Go ahead and disagree with Josh. I can see you want to slightly here. Me? Disagree <laughs> with Josh? Good heavens. Um, Josh, I completely agree that there's a time and a place always for, and I've, I've really spent some time thinking this through because there are plenty of times that I've originated my own video as a government person for different things. There's also a really important argument about even though your intentions are good, you can't just use a process that looks like your state 
government manipulating images, okay? But so, that's wait, what it wait, is. wait, 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 that's okay. To me, though, you can make your own picture, but there's also a way to keep a transparency on the process. So there's never any question like, yeah, when there's a big summit, and no, there's nobody in the world that's going to come in, uh, an independent or an, a news department that's going to come in with a truck with 25 cameras to produce fantastic video of an amazing event, and that has to be done by private money and organized by the the government in most cases, right? But there's still a transparency on that process so they know what's going on. Um, you just have to put in put in protection. The picture's going to look the same, whoever makes it. I know that. But you have to put in protection so the president is not open to charges that he did any manipulating that he did not do, that there's no credibility hit on the president or the White House, even though you want to keep a control on that picture. That's what still has to be worked out more comfortably. That's fair enough. Okay. Yeah, uh, and on the stills, I would also like to offer, too, that if you do a grab off a screen, uh, here's the president looking into the camera, that is an accurate uh, still of the president speaking during his television address. But really good stills are looking for something else when they're telling, they're looking for a different angle. I'm that, nodding vigorously. Yeah, when Josh is, too. I know it. I mean it. That when they're doing the story later for a different medium that uh, they need a different, uh, they're going to do the story that captures the whole speech, doesn't just replay the speech. They're looking for a picture that captures the moment, too. And I think they're, they, every White House has figured out a way to help the gifted ones do that. You will not hear this discussion anywhere else. This discussion that you are hearing on Polyoptics with someone like Ann Edwards, uh, Adam Belmar, and Josh King is the province of editorial discussions and discussions that that rarely ever get done inside the white house at a philosophical level they do yeah. but not often because once the once the once the uh, the trains left the station you know you're busy as hell Ann, and you know that and we don't, we don't really get back to talk about the fundamental issues so often we we sort of run the playbook I, and i would disagree in one sense um i've worked for some amazing people and these discussions in my experience would happen well, I, I had one, uh, a very heady and very divisive one in the Bush administration, which we can talk about on another day, um, <laughs> that, 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 that included an enormous drag-out brawl with an unnamed network. And uh, I have never raised my voice or sworn as much as I did in that conversation because uh, I and think we're all... did it work? Did you prevail? No, I lost. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> but um, we, we definitely have zeroed in on some issues that are important. And make no mistake, the idea here is to protect two things. The President of the United States and the White House, and also the American people. Our President needs to be a credible individual, and I think all of us strive to make sure that what we do serves both the President and the citizens of the United States in a fair way. Um, I want to turn the topic for a second, uh, Josh. As we go forward here on polyoptics, there are other things that are at hand, and not the least of which is that the political fires are starting to burn for 2012. Uh, talk to us about what you're seeing. We had a debate this week. Right. We had a debate this week by a bunch of uh, Republican candidates who you would think might not have a very strong shot at this White House or at least be able to put up a 
credible fight against an Obama campaign that is going to be incredibly well-funded at near a billion dollars. We had Newt Gingrich get into the race. You had uh, Mitt Romney uh, go to a business school classroom to give a PowerPoint to try and defend his health care plan. And I, as I watched Romney in Michigan, I thought as, as hard as the Romney campaign is working to sort of be unplugged compared to its 2008 effort in which he was always in a suit and incredibly well advanced. There was, Anne, I think this uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, too cute by half effort to put him in this business school setting that I confess Josh King, the advanced man, would have said to the White House, please let me do this. And Anne Edwards might might have said that's a little too far-fetched. I wondered who had done that to uh, Governor Romney. That... Um it was, if they were trying to show that I'm an authority, I didn't know what they were trying to show. It was a setting that, if you didn't see it, it was a, a classroom, one of these almost sort of amphitheater college settings. There was a good 15, 20 feet between his uh, lectern and uh, where the first person was sitting way over there. So you didn't get a sense of him among uh, students. Uh, there was nothing about this particular uh, room that said, business, uh, you know, these are people who are really developing this policy. Um, he was uh, tieless. Um, I didn't understand what they were trying to convey. A- you think it, it, was a, it was a mistake not to have the tie on? I think that they weren't, if he if he was doing a policy speech that was a presentation to people where he, I think there's a, a reason you dress more formally when you want your words to be heard that way. Um, and so I didn't understand the whole setting. You know, Josh and I, uh, every week, try and figure out who we are going to bring to the conversation on polyoptics. Some of the smartest, most experienced people that we know who really, truly have great experience and insight into these things, as you do. Uh, We reached out for a fellow by the name of um, Kevin Madden, who is a friend of mine here in Washington, D.C. He was formerly the communications director for the House Majority Leader and now Speaker of the House, John Boehner. He works on K Street. He's a strategic communications consultant and is been greatly and for a long time affiliated with Governor Romney. He couldn't come on this show this week because he was involved in what way I can't tell you. We'll ask him when we get him on the show with helping to put that speech together for Governor Romney. And I agree with you. There were a lot of things that didn't quite fit together. The image was not portraying what I think they were trying to achieve. And the the nuance of the policy and where he was and whether he regretted or felt that it is, you know, still the best thing that could have happened for the folks of Massachusetts got lost in the translation, I think. Well, I, I do. But I, I also, as I'm listening to the conversation uh, and reflecting on... Uh, odds that are out this week that Mark Halperin, uh, one of the... Uh, yeah, what's Romney most, at 30 to 1 or something? No, no, he has Romney at 3 to 3 1. 3 to 1, I'm which, sorry. Which clearly makes Romney the front runner in a, in a experienced eyes like Mark's. And I would was have to gov- say... Was is Governor I, Daniels in that Yeah, it was field? at about 10 to 1. Okay, sorry. And, um, as yet undeclared. Right. As yet undeclared right. Right, Mitch right. Daniels. And so, uh, you know, Mark, who, who, has, who does better handicapping for this field than anyone... Despite all this, puts Romney as the as the likely nominee because, frankly, he's he is the the at this point the best polished of the uh, Republican candidates. But I think that just as sometimes a photo editor will take that 
uh, grumpy shot of the candidate if the news is trending badly. Yeah. Uh, or, or, you know, of all the other nice pictures that are available on the feed that day. Um, I do have a sense that there, there's a bit of a piling on on Mitt Romney because of what he did with health care in Massachusetts, as if that is the only qualification to be president. And so I think it's a it, it's a big challenge for the nascent Romney effort to get beyond uh, his record as Massachusetts governor and health care. But I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for a person who is a very strong candidate who has a lot more to say, and they need the airspace to be able to say that. I think there's also a disadvantage, though, to uh Governor Romney right now because he's one of the only ones out there. Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot more of his of of his events to cover. But when you were talking, um, uh, also Josh, what was striking me most about this is this the kind of thing in this part of the campaign that you get it together that you're so much of what everybody's talking about at any kind of an event like this, whether a candidate or a president, any policymaker, they're talking about an idea. Or they're talking about a proposal. They're talking about something that isn't there yet. And trying to illustrate an idea is what we have all. That's what makes this so really endlessly fascinating, is the right way to illustrate an idea or to bring an, an idea to life, to, to give it a face and a voice and a something that will stick with you. One of the things that I do... Uh, in addition to my work at Quinn Gillespie, which is a bipartisan government affairs and public relations firm here in Washington, D.C., is I still work with politicians to help marry uh, the message and the image with the words uh, of, of given speeches. And one of the, the things that, that I've worked on of late, and I won't go into uh, you know the who and where, but uh, I've been working with some governors who are out there uh, with legislative sessions just ending who are talking about their priorities. And one of the things that we find uh, just as a best practice in political communications, and I tend toward it a little bit more than others, is that being able to say and see in the shot what the message is, here's the goal, here's what we've been working for, to visualize it and see it on the front page of the paper in addition to hearing it and reading about it makes a real big difference. And some of these uh, things, like the Romney speech, can be That's well right. well-conceived in, in, in theory, but if you don't have the right, if you don't have Josh King on the ground or Ann Edwards helping to figure out, you know, well, hold on, let me just tell you why this might work better if we do it this way. You you really can lose something and, and you don't have your 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 stuff together. There's so quite many yet. there's so many variables in there uh, that as you know this doesn't they might have had really like some most talented person in the world might have truly been standing outside that door waiting for the governor. Really might have. So many other things have to go into that consideration. You know, are we showing, are we going to go to a hospital to talk about this to show it's about sick people? Or are we going to go to the floor of the stock exchange to show it's about money? Are we going to go to a place like a business school where it's about everybody's trying desperately to develop the right approach? We all know it's a problem. But that's what they didn't take over the goal lane. And they just might not have the conversation yet where the person who knows the policy and the one who understands what's going to how the story is going to be told have enough of a connection between them uh I'll tell you a story is that about fair? uh yeah. absolutely Ann. um and ann talks sort of about the macro logistical scheduling macro. decisions of where you send air force one or where you send the candidate's plane 
to go send a message. As you drill down uh, into the really granular aspects of this, I bring you back to probably late 1991, early 1992, doing some initial events for Governor Clinton. And I'm in some Midwestern town, probably Ohio or Michigan, and uh, probably going out to Walmart uh, or, uh, or Fred Meyer to buy supplies for the event. And I wander over to the gun section and look at the counter, and I, I buy for probably about 50 bucks um, a rifle scope. And uh, Anne may remember this, but I, I took a, a Clinton no, for President... No, I, I would remember I, this. I, I, I took a Clinton for President business card and type on it, uh, Josh's tight shot ometer. And I'm sure that it's not the kind of thing that would ever go down well with Secret Service today. But I would carry oh, that rifle that scope. I, actually uh, I, I would carry that rifle scope with me in my kit bag for advance. And wherever we decided to put the president, I would walk uh, 50 feet away where the where the TV cameras would be set up or where the stills would be set up, and I'd look exactly through to where I thought the president's head would be to find out exactly what would be on the wall behind him. And I would never want to finish an event in which that momentary two minute, uh, 10 seconds of video didn't tell exactly the story that I wanted to tell, often through people in the shot, words in the shot, uh, design of the shot, but it was all about what I regarded as See, the tight shot. as a Republican, I uh, fundamentally had more money than you, Josh, and I had a really nice Canon camera with a very nice long lens that I would use in place of your rifle scope. But and, you're excuse me, I would take pointer and thumb man and they touch them to the other two, <laughs> she's make doing a little box, honey, here. and look through your fingers. <laughs> she's like uh, a I'll show Hollywood you a low, I'll show you a low budget these. operation. But uh, the reality is that you're absolutely correct, that if you can't get eyes on and take a look at what that tight shot should be, what it's going to look like. It's essentially 18 inches on either side of the principal's head. That's the space you own. That's where you live. And the macro, the wide shot, where the press and the and the and the uh, the cuts cameras are going to be, they're all matter. It's all important. At different the, point, different points of relevance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the reason that uh, President Obama went to El Paso, there were reasons to go to El Paso. It had to make sense in El Paso. It had to make sense to the communities that uh, regard El Paso. But for everybody who's not in El Paso. That's the world. The world is that box, that flat box in the flat screen. God bless. I hope everybody who's listening to this here on Polyoptics on POTUS uh, is starting to appreciate a little bit of where we live and breathe as we try and consider, at least in these very, very tight, through the, the looking glass, through the camera lens elements of how work is done. Because Ann Edwards' life and her career is so much bigger than that. But yeah. she is one of these people who can see straight down, like Josh can, to what the vast majority of people across the country and the world will see and, and, and help to make that work in context with the broader elements of where, why, and when. The, the people in this uh, uh, business who do this kind of work, that I there's a lot of them that I respect so much, every one of them, duh, forget party, every one of them know that American people are really smart. The people mm. everywhere are really, really, they're smart. They're busy. That's all. They're just busy. If you only have a momentary flash into their lives to tell them what you're trying to do to their world, that's why you have to capture it. And where I would spend all my time trying to do conversion is not among the general public. It's not among the general public at all, but going to policy people, which I do, to say you've got to understand 
good events people are your policy's best friend. Lightning round. Here we're going to do something new here on Polyoptics. I want to take five minutes as we wrap up with Ann Edwards, former director of press advance for the Clinton administration and all manner of other amazing credentials. Josh and Ann, I want you to take a second. I want you to give me your favorite press advance story. Was it a foreign trip? Well, we'll start with Josh because Josh, he's got a thousand stories. He's done so much and he's always can sort of just get right down to the heart of a fun one for us. So go ahead, Josh. Well, the greatest honor I ever had as ability to produce White House events was being uh, dispatched along with Anne to uh, Normandy to plan the 60th anniversary of uh, the D-Day landings um, in, uh, or the 50th anniversary of the D-Day landings in 1994. And uh, from Natuno Cemetery in Italy to Cambridge Cemetery in England to uh, Colville-sur-Mer Cemetery above the cliffs of uh, Omaha Beach, the intricacies involved in that and the ability to use the fact that the President of the United States was going to visit and it's the same as when Reagan visited or when George W. Bush visited and when President Obama visited to ennoble the greatest generation. And 94 was a time just before the term greatest generation really came to the fore. Uh, we just had we had the principal reason why photographers were tailing with us, why this was going to be covered to the extent that it was. And uh, with a lot of mentoring and encouragement and partnership with someone like Anne. This wasn't necessarily about Bill Clinton going to Normandy. This was about showing how much we value the veterans, how much we revere what was done at Point de Hoc, Utah Beach, Omaha Beach, among our allies. And, uh, uh, you know, it involved multiple trips to northern France and hours and hours of meetings. But in the end, it really did uh, raise the awareness of the sacrifice of the greatest generation. And I think uh, I think Steven Spielberg watched it and got an idea for Saving Private Ryan, and, and Tom Brokaw watched it, certainly, and, and began to write his books about this. So just at the beginning of a presidential speech, you can pull a generation back into the, our, our focus and make it really important to the American people today. And it's, it's macro and micro always that when we were there on after like months and months of trying to work out the right way to do this and who went where and 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 especially everybody was very good about the reverence for the cemeteries you know they just no but no everybody was great about it there's just a lot of commotion confusion it's a big event you make it happen the french were fabulous in hosting everybody especially at uh, at normandy and um when it actually got down to the day, the hour, the speech is going to happen. It's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And um, all the guests are there, and the guests are the survivors uh, and their families, which is pretty humbling. And you're with these big press tents because we're in the middle of farms, and um, they're, the, the guests are coming off their special buses through their special entrance to make it as physically easy for them as possible. And I went back into this massive, massive, massive press tent, Dillian suppressor there. It was almost empty because everybody had gone out to the cemetery to where the crosses are, to where the speech would be. And um, when I turned around, though, there was one guy, older, sitting in the press tent. You can imagine an empty tent with lanes and lanes of tables as press rooms look with video monitors around that are talking, but nobody's watching them. So there's kind of this hollow audio sound around. And this one guy sitting there, and I walked over to him, and um, can I help you, sir? 
and uh, do you need a ticket? I could tell by his age he wasn't crashing the event. You know, the um, uh, do you need a hand here or no, no? He said, and he didn't look up from the screen. He just said to me, he said, I promised my family I'd come, but this is as far as I can go. We were about a hundred feet from the beach. I took him into the smaller office we always make for the White House press secretary so he could sit there by himself. I did go and get his family. We got some other people to come in and congratulate him. Uh, he was fine, but he was watching it on television. And um, it has to be as real for him. Another time we were in um, a country that shall remain nameless because they are allies. but. Uh, there was a big, important speech, and it was one of these speeches where it really mattered uh, for the relationship with the country, and it was the kind of speech where everybody who had a title is angling for a ticket, right? There's not going to be any normal people in this speech. It's it's going to be everybody and their spouse and, you know, uh, just a hall full of people who just want to say, I was there, forgive me, but you know that happens, which just nobody likes that, but that's the real world. And so it's a long, narrow hall, and the camera which would be on the speaker's face, which speakers which did include the President of these United States, um, would have been probably 100 feet away, which a camera can't do. Uh, Not that's a phenomenally well. long throw. That's too long. It's unfair. It's a, there's just it's just doesn't work. And um, all right. So you have to so imagine like a long, narrow bowling lane of some old European hall that was so special you have to do the speech in this hall fine and they don't want the camera to block anybody so I arrive and what I did was there probably were now really probably about uh, 50 rows of chairs they were probably about uh, 20 humans wide and I walked out to row number uh, probably 15 12 or 15 and I took out the chair on the middle aisle and I said I'm standing here and this is where we really need to put that camera. It's only as big as me. Tripod, right? Modern equipment, small camera. And they said, you can't do that. Look how many people it will block. And I said, okay, good. Count how many people will block. And we did. We did the vector, like the V, right? How many people would lose line of sight behind this camera? Not that many. I think it ended up being something like 70 seats. I said, right. Now, let me tell you about this seat. Uh, seat number one on aisle 14. There are 60 million people sitting, sitting right in here. that yep. seat. <laughs> and that's just your country. Now, let me add in mine. I said, now we're at something like 360 million. And oh my, you think anybody else is going to watch? Oops, numbers are climbing. We're at about 500 million people and I haven't taken a breath yet. <laughs> they got the point. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's what everybody has to remember in terms of the perspective on these things, you know? And that can be a struggle when people are so vested in making the event in the room go perfectly and not hurting any little ego world here. And and um, I did say, well, they said, well, what do we do about the members of our parliament who are sitting behind here? I said, well, you let them tell their constituents why it was more important that they sat here than, they, than their constituents did. So, uh, you know, everybody got the point. The camera was there. But that's the kind of thing you can never forget. As macro as it gets, that's as micro as you got to think. That is phenomenal. I tell you, I just love listening to you put it in perspective. Uh, you've been there. You've done that. You've represented the United States. 
and you represented the President of the United States in some very important places at some very important times. And, you know, as someone who, who, is, who has done it as well, I want to thank you for your service, but more importantly, thanks for sharing your insight with us today. You know what Hamilton Jordan told us once when I was in the Jimmy Carter White House, President Carter White House, and it was so early and so new, and um, we were so young, all of us, and trying to deal with all this excitement and hoopla. And Hamilton turned around to a room full of us one time just over his shoulder and said, hey, you get hit by a bus, you know what? Somebody else has got your job tomorrow. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> Always did. Yeah. Well, we, we do appreciate you being here with us on Polyoptics, uh, and we hope that you'll come again, Ann Edwards. You guys are fun, sure. Happy to. Well, that was a great conversation with Ann Edwards. You know, she, um, she trained me in 1991, 1992, uh, and very much was that air traffic controller for me. And there's probably hundreds of people uh, like me and like you, Adam, that she has trained over the years. And, you know, what she didn't talk about so much of the work that she's done after she left the White House is really bringing a lot of these same principles of helping uh, new democracies uh, make their messages public in the new NATO countries in uh, uh, in the former Soviet Union, and so she's she's really done amazing work uh, since leaving the White House. She she really is like a uh, a Jedi master who has trained so many of the young Jedi in 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 this uh, realm coming up, you included, and and have I had my, my mentors as well. But uh, she's a phenomenal woman, uh, very strong and just so insightful. She does not talk to the press and she does not do media. And so it was a very special thing to have her join us today. And she and I talked off the air uh, a little bit uh, before she came on with us, Josh, about the work that you're talking about with these NATO countries. And they are very wise to have picked up a consultant with that kind of knowledge to be able to help guide them as they as they start to map a way to communicate uh, within their borders and beyond. Well, so uh, people like uh, the the future uh, Jedi apprentices of Ann Edwards are assembling slowly in the early primary and caucus states. We're seeing news that Mike Huckabee will tell us this week whether he'll be a candidate or not. But one way or another, uh, there are going to be bands of press-advanced people, advanced people, going to places like Des Moines, Manchester, New Hampshire, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, checking into their hotels, taking out their rifle scopes, and figuring out what the tight shots are going to be for a whole new crop of candidates. You still make me laugh with the rifle scope, but you're right. Everybody needs to get uh, get in and dug in and start to figure out how they can best serve their principles. And uh, while there is so much drama right now uh, signifying perhaps not so much in a Republican field that's still bereft of heavyweights, um, the the air of a political season is uh, is upon us, and we are going to be able to take a long and hard look with some of the smartest people. Uh, we have big names a lot here on Polyoptics, Josh. Some of the people at the very top, but the real stories, the real insights come uh, when we talk to people who are out there as consultants, as principals, folks who are doing advance and press advance, and the folks who will be on the front lines of the 2012 campaign. And that's what I love about doing this every week with you here at Polyoptics. It's great. Uh, and and there's so much to still discover. Uh, I hope, Adam, you and I get a chance to maybe uh, head out on the road a little bit and, and to actually bring you stories from what's happening in, in some of these uh, early states to paint this picture of what it takes to... Uh, 
bring a candidate to an early coffee gathering of 20 people in Manchester until you get to that moment when they're talking before thousands of people in downtown squares. Well, that's right. And I want to I want to take a chance uh, on that note to thank Dave Gorab, who's one of the leaders here at uh, Sirius XM. And of course, Tim Farley, who's got the reins here at POTUS, both enormous supporters of what we do and uh, the value that I hope we bring to our audience here at POTUS Politics of the United States. And of course, we want to thank Catherine Caperton, who is our more than capable producer every week here. Uh, you are listening to Sirius XM 124, Polyoptics on POTUS, Politics of the United States.